Welcome to the Keener Yoga Podcast. I'm so pleased you found us and taking the time to listen to this. We love doing these interviews and we're always endeavouring to put one up once a week since we started over a year ago. Up to this point, we've recorded roughly 70 episodes with a range of guests on yoga, obviously, but also philosophy, pranayama, food and diet, amongst other things. The project is a labour of love and if you fancy donating as little as a cup of coffee, great, you can do that through our website on the podcast page. Also, if you haven't already, please leave us a review if you're listening through Apple Podcasts. So today's guest is Liz Cook on the Kieran Yoga Podcast. She comes from an academic background as a teacher in sculpture, and this is our second episode with Liz. However, her speciality in this is the spatial element of sculpture, one day she happened upon a yoga class and realized this was what was actually being denied in the dissemination in the teaching of yoga, the space for one's own experience of being outside the notions of alignment, focusing on the rigid column of the spine. So from here, Liz was asked to start writing for Yoga Journal and these articles ended up turning into her book, Core Awareness, which was really the first discussion of the psoas. And it was published in the 90s when hardly anyone had heard of this. We covered this all in, well, not all of it, but in episode one, a few podcasts back. More recently, Liz has released Stalking Wild Soas, which was, in a way, an answer to the mistaken attempts of the yoga world, having helped to bring the psoas into the general awareness here. The yoga students are busy now, dominating and essentially recolonizing their bodies in a way that Liz didn't plan. So this brings me to the particular subject of my second podcast with Liz. Here we spread out from the physical body and our attitudes towards our own individuation of this to our social economic attitudes to the world represented in the physical body. So it sounds complicated, but having reduced ourselves in the experience of knowing the psoas and knowing our bodies, we assume that we can now isolate, know, control and often commoditize our experience. So this is why I really wanted to do a second episode with Liz. For the implications of our work on the psoas go deeper than just the body, although it is through our deeper embodiment of our body that this happens. However, embodying ourselves in a more visceral, non-linear manner, we notice the kind of narratives of repression and restraint we are generally in the West living under. So our talk here I find highly, highly inspiring. For there's no time, like now, that we might better look for other perspectives, non-colonial, non-establishment, non-patriarchal narratives on our re- on our own experience. So welcome, Liz, for another episode with you and look forward to hearing what you've got to say this time. So welcome, Liz, to the number two interview on the Keenan Yoka podcast. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, Adam. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I suppose let's... Um, Last time we talked a lot about the psoas and we'd just like to expand from the psoas into its significance in a wider and implications in a wider context. So perhaps we just go a little bit over um, Liz's background, first of all, once more, if you didn't listen to number one. Um, Liz, would you mind just giving a very potted history about how you arrived to be what I call the psoas lady? Uh, thank you. Um, basically, I'm a conceptual artist. I was at the Boston Museum School of Fine Arts in what was deemed flexible sculpture, which was a new way of looking at form and shape. And uh, I myself was interested in movement. And I was looking for someone because I realized movement changes perception, right? You know, we move, our minds change. 
And, uh, and I was introduced to the psoas through Bob Cooley, who was a dancer who was looking at why the dancers injure themselves. You could say with yoga, with dance, with fitness, what, what interrupts, you know, so that you end up with an ankle that's torn or, you know, torn ligaments or something. So he was just in a very somatic place of, of tracking. And he tracked it to the psoas, uh, recognizing that we're a spine-based organism and all movement comes from the spine. Right. Yeah. I suppose as I was, you know, many questions kind of arose as I was re like listening and writing up the first interview chat we had. And one of them was like, what, what was the significance of a movement when you were in the sculpture world? I mean, how did you, I mean, you, you talk, you, you mentioned, you know, just in passing that you had this feeling that, that the movement in that one's own body affected the perception of the sculpture itself. Was that how it went? So you're looking at a sculpture thinking, well, depending on how I move, how I relate to it, um, you know, it, um, it changes and it in, informs itself. Uh, what do you, yeah. Do you want to talk well, yeah. Well, well, actually, I was more of a um, what what in those days would be called a person interested in happenings. In other words, I wanted to deconstruct sculpture. I I I wasn't an artist. I was brought in because I was thinking differently, and the dean wanted me to shake up an all male sculpture department. And as a young woman, I had the audacity to think I could. Um, so I, I went for it, but so I was deconstructing form, which I'm still deconstructing form. And so that's, the that's the lineage is that what are we calling form? Is it this concretized piece of wood or cement or rock or, or is form something that shows up and then dissolves and shows up and dissolves. And that's life. That is the rhythm of life. So it was an easy transition to understand the idea that something isn't concretized. The psoas isn't concretized. It, it's this fluid tissue that is always informing us, not of the past or the future, but this moment in time. It's, I mean, jumping forward slightly, it's, uh, as we mentioned in the last one, it's slightly ironic then that people are now kind of very much concretized the psoas, right? That anyone that yes. is um, probably for the first time listening to you now, listening to this podcast, certainly myself, I think even in the last episode was, well, you know, now we know that the psoas exists and you've given it a label. And in, in a way, you're to blame. You brought, you brought it to light and labeled it. And now people are stretching their psoases out. And it was a surprise for me last time to learn that actually that idea of stretching the psoas wasn't your original intentions with it. Right. Actually, the person who really brought psoas, uh, it, it was talked about in Lulu Schweigard and Mabel Todd's work. They brought it in as somatic educators. And then Ida Roth brought it into structure. And that's when it began to be something we could fix. And I don't think that was her intention, but it, it is who kind of brought it into that form. And so I experienced it more as an as an internal experience. I wasn't studying it from the outside. I was I was exploring inside, and I recognized that this tissue had different qualities than a muscle. And it was it was when I started to realize that I started to look for um, a paradigm that would fit because biomechanics does. If you want to understand psoas, you can't use a biomechanical paradigm. But my internal experience was telling me something different than anything I could find out there. 
And then finally, I was introduced to embryology. And the moment embryology came into my understanding, I went, oh, my God, this is what I'm sensing inside. Is, is an unfolding and an infolding, an organism that is a living system, not an object. Right. So maybe let's go back and just define biomechanics and then embryology, because that's an important part of this discussion. Yeah. So, so bio, biomechanics comes out of a 500-year-old perspective of looking at uh, cadavers and dry cadavers. So they, so when you dissect something, it's reductionist thinking in which if I take this thing apart, whatever this thing is, a cell, an animal, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to understand it, the universe, you know, I'm going to understand it. And that's reductionist thinking. And that's what we're looking at when we're looking at dead tissue. We're not looking at movement. We're looking at, oh, these are the parts of this thing called a human being. And so in that realm, so as it's put in the muscle box, it's, it's part of a mechanistic model of body. So we're looking at the body as a machine, and these are the parts of the machine. Embryology looks at a living system, the ability for the system to show up and dissolve, which where cells are constantly doing. We're a living organism. We're like a river. We're a caterpillar. We're, you know, we're, we're expressive, but we're also changing constantly. And, and in that realm, psoas is a messenger of the midline, the center of your being. It's your, what the Taoists call the muscle of the soul. It's a long way from kind of trying to isolate and fix the psoas then. Yes. Well, me the mechanistic model is to say you don't have a soul. You have a spine and all tissue forward flexes, all tissue back extends. But... But there's no center of your being. But when you bring in any kind of uh, Eastern traditions, there's always a center to your being. There's an energetic field you're working with. Biomechanics doesn't have an energetic field. There is no emotions. There is no soul. There is no, you're just a body. And, and in a body, you can fix it. You, like a car, you know. And so you fix the so as most people think by stretching it. And Yoga Journal, for example, in the United States is still confusing that. Even though I talked for them recently, they still want to they still want to say if you do this pose and this pose and this pose, you'll fix your so as you know. It's so interesting to see their editorial body keep kind of taking my work and not knowing how to how to digest it, right? How to how to hold. That's actually why I love what you're doing. Um, why, but why, why is it they're doing that? Why is it that, you know, I mean, well, to say why is it we're stuck in reductionist thinking is probably self-evident. You know, we're in this current, current, you know, current paradigm. But, you know, like, why is it that they can't, that one can't relate to the SOAS as a living, feeling thing from the inside out? And right. That's a big question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? <laughs> Why do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah. well that's what I was passing on to you. <laughs> and also, what I suppose the second one to that is how do we how do we relate and and fix the psoas then if we can't fix it, or how do we know the psoas if we can't know it as anything? We can't pin it down. We can't know it as anything other than something which is in a state of flux, which is got. You know, it's very ambiguous terminology around it, right? But you know, like people are listening to this. For answers, you know, we, we are meaning-seeking, you know, beings and we're looking for some sense of resolution, right? And if it doesn't lie in not pinning something down, knowing it, 
disseminating, isolating. What does the, the uh, reconciliation, let's say, um, lie with? That process. It's in process. It's, in, uh, it's starting to access, and this is the link between the, co- uh, the colonized body and a living system, is it's not a top-down model. You can't, you can pin it down, you know, you can look at it through fluid connective tissue and recognize it's part of the deepest core of the human organism that has your spine, your psoas, your kidneys, and your adrenals. It is your sympathetic neuro core, it's called. But, but what we're really kind of looking at is why don't we experience ourselves as a living organism? Why do we think of ourselves as an object that we construct or destruct? You know, and it's in there that you see the, the, you see the mechanistic, capitalistic, uh, materialistic understanding of life. That's the main paradigm. That's the colonized Western paradigm that's imposed on indigenous cultures, on people who live and in response to rhythms of life. Right. And that's a complicated subject. Why is it capitalist? Why, why, why are we defined and, and kind of, I don't know, constrained by this, this reductionist thinking um, through a capitalist? Uh, and, well, I uh, think the capitalism comes in with the materialism. Yeah. Because as long as we look at life as something to use, to take, to resource, including ourselves, mm-hmm. You know, we take that, you know, okay, I'm going to fix my psoas. This is the problem. So tell me how to do that. Well, well, that's a top-down model. That's an intellectual control of body. It's actually uh, militaristic as well. It's, it's, it's engaging the body as an object of, of doing. But psoas is tissue of being. It's about your being. I suppose it's also to do with... So basically conditioning and social control. So if you're told what to be and told how to form yourself, you're of no danger. You're no danger to society. But if you're, you know, suddenly kind of inclined to think for yourself and feel, feel yourself, then, you know, it's a whole different story, isn't it? In terms of getting one body of people to act homogeneously for a common good. I, I, I think the only way that Western mindset can be can understand this is to go read indigenous writers. Um, that, that because the relationship to earth is a different than the, than it's, it's a relationship. It's a reciprocity. It's a connection deeply embedded in the fact that we are, we are in fact a living part of the earth. We're elemental. And so it's philosophically totally different than the objectified view. So I'm suggesting instead of biomechanics, biointelligence. It's not that I'm an individual. Individuality is actually based also on the same concept of isolation. If we isolate the infant, it will become its own person. That is actually not what mammals do. We are so disconnected and dissonant from the earth which we are now experiencing the results of those 500 to, you know, three, 4,000 years of just total havoc. And now here we are. So, you know, 
let's go back to the psoas for a minute and okay. kind of well it has to do with survival so 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 as is is the, the response to that's your animal body's response to survival so we're seeing so incredible responses of fear that are throughout yeah, I, throughout the species for lots of reasons i suppose the wish to know is the wish to escape fear right so i was maybe going to make a link back to the wish to know and isolate one's body is the wish to somehow control or shut down or suppress past trauma or experience or fears you know held within the body and i think your understanding of the psoas is that it is a uh, can we call it a muscle? Yeah, we can call it a muscle, right? That's uh, there, that's that stores uh, one's own history and one's own fear responses. Then becomes. Well, well, I, I would I would like to reframe that. I'd like to suggest that that instead of thinking of psoas as muscle, because in the muscle world you're looking at uh, tone, you're looking at contraction or stretch, right? For the average person, right? Use the cucumber again. Yeah, but if you look, at, yeah, if you look at the organism at the, and the very core of your being as a messenger, so so it becomes a messenger of this axis, this relationship with the larger biointelligence of what brought you here and manifested you here embryologically. Okay, so here you are, you've unfolded into yourself, and you're discovering that and it's going to go in and out like a tide. You know, you're going to go return and you're going to emerge. And so in that process, so as is messaging coherency. Do Am I showing up in space and time in this moment? And for many people, they're disassociated. So they think I have to get in my body. But that's a split right there. You, you, you can't be on Earth without a body. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it's like that's how we manifest is... We are those elemental beings. We're not filling a container. We are that. And that living process is what so as is messaging. There's something interrupting the capacity for your system to heal, to write itself in space and time, to organize itself proprioceptively so you know whether you're upside or down, you know, right side, wherever you are. So, you know, in the world of something like energetics like yoga is, you know, it's a tradition of challenging relationships with gravity. And by doing that, it changes your perception. You know, it's a it's a download of information. It's not a performative event. Um, but in the Western world, we've made it performative, right? We've we've concretized yoga now. So you see the concretization of things by trying to to stop it. That's part of what you're talking about. Like we just want it to stop. A <laughs> 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 life doesn't stop, mm, you know? Mm, so it's mm. like, how resilient am I out? How responsive am I in, in any moment in time? And when we have a lot of, uh, we don't have a nourished nervous system. That's really what the psoas is talking about, is the quality of our nervous system. It's, it's the resiliency. It's the capacity of the nervous system. And it's and its ability to harmonize in the moment that Soas is talking about. So you can't fix it by stretching it. You actually have to nourish it mm, mm. by finding rhythm. Yes, we did talk about that before. Um, yes, yeah, so as you say, like don't don't shoot the messenger. Um, 
Right. So, and finding rhythm. And I read something recently you were saying about the, the bones and the kind of proprioception and the heaviness, the heavy, the feeling the heaviness of one's own bones, right? Yeah. Um, having recognized that, I mean, you also talk a lot about a nourished rather than a dry psoas. So, yeah. so having recognized that there's a sense of brittleness or, or dryness about one's adrenal fatigue, like what, how, how, how do you personally address that? for people wanting answers obviously wanting relief of suffering right and yeah maybe to know that they're a colonialized body might not be good enough hydrating your connective tissue is a really direct way of having a juicy psoas okay so so first we have to change the paradigm because otherwise we're stressing ourselves to try to fix something but it's actually not it's about tending to your own nervous system and, and bones, for example, are actually float in connective tissue. So it's not so much about the density of bone, although you're right, there, there's a density to the bone it, because it's, it's also connective tissue, but it's a denser. But sensory-wise, it actually makes you feel lighter when you're in your bone than muscle does. But, but, it, but it, because it's floating in connective tissue, but it's rhythm, it's rhythm is the same as the earth so it vibrates slower which is why it's denser and it and to the rhythm of the earth so when i access my own sense of bone if i go into your practice by perceiving where are my bones on the earth i will actually access a different rhythm to my work or to my exploration to my play that is is brings me into the moment I'm in. It's not about leaving this moment and going into, you know, nirvana. It's about showing up here on earth because that's kind of why we came here is to show up. So here we are, you know, and, and, and when we're, when we're, we're there. So what happens? One of the things I see happening in the yoga community is the, um, and we didn't, I don't think talk about this last time is, uh, when you're good at something, you tend to do it. And people who are hypermobile tend to do yoga. Mm -hmm. okay? yeah. So you're yeah. going further into something that's already yeah. whatever This is currently a hot topic, yeah. Hypermobility, yeah. 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 Well, it's grown. When I first was teaching, I might have one person or no people in my workshop that were hypermobile. Oh, really? Even, even working in the yoga community, they weren't necessarily hypermobile to the extent that they are today. So we actually know that the hypermobility is a disruption in embryology when collagen is being laid down. And so when we're developing collagen in the embryological story, people, uh, they're, they're, there's exposure to uh, ecological and chemical exposure. I don't, I mean, there's conversations around that. What is causing this to happen? But it's not a personal, oh, my mother did something. It's like more of a larger field. So there's more people who are very, um, experience the world more energetically than people who are, who have more collagen that are kind of more fight or flight animal bodies. You know, like there's a kind of difference in our, our, in our literal structure. So for those people who have any, any, who have either overstretched ligaments or just naturally have, a, ligaments, you're going to need a lot of attending to bone as well as muscle 
to feel really the groundedness of being here. And in doing so, and that's where Kimberly Johnson comes in, because she's talked a lot about that in her own body. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, she's coming. She's coming. Yeah, yeah, she and I have a very different way of being in our bodies. Absolutely. Because of yeah. collagen, elastin quality. But in the psoas world, the psoas is reading that. So what happens to people who seem very flexible on the outside is you can get very dry on the inside. Hmm. Because you're actually stressing if you don't balance yeah. If you don't well, be, yeah, and that's in line with the Ayurveda idea, right? You know, this idea of vata being very kind of open, wind-based, dry. Yeah, yeah. Know it, know it well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you know that you have, you have to really trust yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so balance. We're looking, at, we're looking at elemental balance. So everybody doesn't need the same thing. They need a unique nourishment that's addressing their elemental balance. And Ayurvedics or Chinese medicine, you know, basically constitutionally, that supports a healthy psoas. You know, just like for me, the opening up of connective tissue helps me not be so dense. Okay. So for me, I can't get that range of motion without going through muscle because I'm not bypassing muscle going right into ligaments that are have what that's what hypermobility is it's in the liver uh gallbladder well and that's where so is this so is housed in between kidney at kidney energy or water element and growth yeah it's right there it's about how do we show up here did you did you look to the um chinese medicine paradigm to understand so because you often frame it within that more i mean i suppose there's nothing there's no models in our current like health so-called health system and ideas of health to kind of look at something like the psoas is there no but there is um that i have been approached by um orthopedic surgeon um who reached out to me because he said when i'm trying to help people you know i'm doing surgery on their spine i'm seeing dry psoas so he validated which i love the fact that in my life people come and tell, tell me things that i need to hear he yeah. validated my understanding of dry psoas. <laughs> that's a seriously good one, I'd say. That, that, <laughs> that's a good day when you got that email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I want you to go to now we've kind of gone a little bit more further around psoas, kind of made, kind of re-understood it again and maybe deepened our understanding. Can you just go on to speak about how that reflects, again, our ideas of ourselves as a colonialized body on that paradigm. And we've had recently as a guest, uh, since you, in fact, uh, Tyson Young-Caporta, who uh, is a, you know, a, a very interesting man and, uh, you know, and an indigenous thinker. So uh, I know you're very interested in indigenous thinking and, and you were the one that turned me on to, to looking outside uh, our current conditioning to something other, you know, which has been, yeah, it's been very eye-opening. Uh, can you just speak to your interest of that now a little bit? Well, because I, I had, because the paradigm has to change, um, that the construct of biomechanics didn't help me understand so as, and I began to internally follow or track something much deeper and older. It naturally brought me to indigenous thinking because that is under that construct of colonization. 
But I also found it through looking at white bodies in relationship to Resma Manikim's My Grandmother's Hands, which has to do with racialized trauma. And I recognize that I, as a white body, literally, and I also experienced it personally, carry a kind of ravenous uh, dissonance in my own system that is part of the culture, that when I'm surrounded by bodies, what he calls bodies of culture, of brown and black bodies, yeah. my organism actually relaxes in a way that it doesn't when I'm surrounded around white colonized bodies. Yes. And because I, I'm, I'm tracking the animal body. Okay. And one of the things we see is the separation of that. I am not a mammal. You know, I am a human being and, and the white idealized structure becomes the idealized body. So what do I mean by that? I mean that we define the spine as a column. And if we look at the spine as a column, that's an objectified way of understanding body. And columns are straight. And if you want a more solid uh, column, then you do things that recruit more strength, like uh, create diagonal support. Yeah, more marching, like army marching, right? The quicker right. way to tighten your sides, <clears throat> to stand up straight and kind of keep bringing your knees into your chest in the kind of drill march. Yes. Right? Yes. I, mean, that's, I think that's there for that very reason, right? To shut down. Yes. You're going to viscerally, yeah. Yes. So viscerally, you don't have emotions. You have, you, you, doubt, you control your emotions. And you were even saying, what do people do? There, it, there's something stored there. Well, it's not necessarily stored. It's congested, you could say. You know, it's, yeah. it's like energy that is, is now being held in that upper psoas to recruit it as a way to feel safe. But safety isn't found in recruitment or density. It's found in resiliency. How responsive, you know, think of martial arts. How responsive can I be to being pushed over, you know, or something coming my way I don't expect? Can I, can I you know, move lightly through life or am I going to stand there and bear the brunt of something? Well, as children, we do the best we can. But as a culture, we're also idealizing that kind of body. And you see it in dance, and I see it in yoga. So I started complaining that yogis were, were recruiting their upper psoas to get lift, where instead it's in the high heart, it's in the, it's in the, it's, it's in the breastbone, it's in the ability for it to float that allows the psoas to root into ground. So it's not about drawing something up to have lift. It's about rooting down and then floating the bones that float. Yeah. And, any, and to be honest, what you I mean, you, oh, you say a lot of really good things, but, but one of them, that's true. And that if anyone's experienced that and had that experience of lift that, that people really look for in Ashtanga, they will, ex, they will experience it and explain it in terms like that. Right. And then if you, if you're teaching it from just from a theoretical perspective, then you start to use these these uh, an anatomical kind of terminology, right? Which isn't the same at all. Yeah, which no. talks. Yeah, um, yes. So indigenous thinking. Can you uh, explain why it's different to uh, and, and how it differs and why it's better, um, or at least we need it in conjunction with our own thinking, perhaps? I, I think our survival is dependent upon it, personally. Okay. The construct that we can control the earth, that we can control life, that we can dominate it, isn't working out very well. The UN just put out, you know, 20 years. 
yeah, no, Tyson thinks the same. And Tyson's saying how, how long have we got for heavy metals? So, you know, you've got like, maybe and that's all the circuitry, all the mobile phones, everything. He's got like, you know, 50 years more of heavy metals or something like that. So what we're looking at an unsustainable way of, of and, and, a, and a disassociation from animals that we are animal, that we are earth. We have like, you know, you could say the world, the earth is looking at us like, what is wrong with you? You know, like, I don't think it's the earth that's going to, to vanish. It's us that are going to go extinct because we simply are, are, have, have left a, 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 a reciprocal relationship that is profound that we don't even know we've left. So the isolation has created this inability to actually uh, be nourished by our relationship with the earth. And yet we do find that when we go to nature, all of a sudden people say, I feel calmer. I feel more connected. I feel more nourished. My nervous system starts to regulate. I sleep better. I eat better. I digest better because we are mammals and we are the animal body. And, and yes, our consciousness, but consciousness is everywhere. So we're not the only, you know, the octopus, for example, has more sensory system than we do. How can we, how, why are we so arrogant that we think we can study the octopus and know an octopus when in fact the octopus can sense us in a much more uh, uh, dynamic and complicated way? It's like we've put ourselves as the top of the pinnacle of life. But we're not. And that's the indigenous cultures understood and survived thousands and thousands and mil I think millions of years of a, of a, of a sustainable way of living because they, their, their whole way of understanding life is to understand we are life. We, we are the earth and it's not a noun. We're not a thing. We are a process. We, so many indigenous languages are about verbs. You know, that the hill isn't a hill, it's hilling. You know, it's in, it's in change. It, life is about change. And so their culture is when we emerge as a newborn, we are, we are being received as a, as a, already a spiritual being, already, uh, an, a living organism to be valued. We're not a blank slate that has to be enculturated into thinking that we get to the top of the, the hill or the pinnacle, we're actually coming into a culture in which they want our gifts. They are welcoming us into earth. Imagine having that experience as a living being where you don't have to fight your way to the top of some recognition as being, okay, here, I finally have arrived. I've got my flag and I stick it in the top of the hill, but that I'm part of something much greater and I'm welcomed to be part of that, to bring that gift to the world yeah do you, i mean so you see it as indigenous um opposing colonial thinking do you is there any relevance to seeing it as masculine feminine male female do you see it well, I, I, think mean, there's a, I think my feeling is you know what happened like what was the impulse of this species to start colonizing what what was that impulse and and it is a militaristic impulse and that is a masculine um you know, direct, the arrow goes direct, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's an energy force. And I don't know what that disruption is, but I wouldn't put it just on men and women. But yes, patriarchy has, has 
taken the balance, you know, it has destroyed the feminine as much as it could. Uh, and it still is. It's still, you know, it's, it's, it's not, to, to the indigenous culture, that balance is a beautiful balance. And it's usually held within the feminine where we hold the culture. Yeah. We, and, you know, and then the ability to, to protect or to direct is that masculine, beautiful energy of manifesting, but then also dissolving. So it's not either or, it's the lack of balance. But at this point, we're so far to one end. It feels like we, have, we should like be moving very quickly to the other. And indigenous cultures value the mother. They value Mother Earth. We do not. We're already thinking of going to Mars. Yeah, there's no yeah. nurturing. There's no process. There's just ends, isn't there? You know, if you want a, if you want a meal, then it's just the, the, the fact is to get to the end as quick as possible. Nothing to do with you know, the cooking, the sharing, the process. <laughs> right? Like, you know, just an example of some, a subject that I, you know, I like. Um, you know, right? Like, so it's the same with everything, right? Like, we want to know ourselves just to fix it, not to, you know, not to nurture it, not to experience it, not to enjoy it, you right? Well, I mean, it's, about, it's about becoming. It's about being. It's not about doing. It, yeah, so is, yeah. So I was going to use not, that. But. So, so is it's not something you do something with. You can. You can misuse it, overuse it, and abuse it. But it's actually not a doing tissue, which doesn't fit in the biomechanical concept because mm. everything is a part of something that's doing yeah, something. That has a but, reason. Yeah, that has a particular reason. Or, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. So in that sense, it sense it's it's simply kind of like a tuning fork. You know, it's giving you a vibrational field of you're safe, you're not safe, you're coherent, you're not coherent. So what we're really turning our cortex, which has become the masculine kind of you know idealized I, idea that the more I can think about something, you know, and or if I can just understand it, I'll know it. But knowing is in the belly core. Knowing is the animal body. We know things that are millions of years. You know, like but also birth. knowing, as you as you kind of rightly kind of like qualified in, in what, something I said earlier, knowing is an expression which just takes place in context and relation rather than as an individual that's you know in separation, right? So, um, and it was a good qualification that you were right. But there's the sense of being more individual that is actually you know what we assume what would happen. You know, when we kind of get to know ourselves more, and we talked last time about the five rhythms, right? That sense. Of, self-expression when you get to know, in touch with your own you know but actually you know what we're looking at here is more a, par a paradigm of kind of relation to to seeing ourselves in context with other rather than just simply as the idea of kind of expressing our own individuality as that's right you can't really know without other you no, know you're nothing i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. there is there has to be that that re reciprocity to actually but but you are you are unique in the sense that, you know, there's no one with your fingerprint. So you also, individuation is not separation or isolation. It's the ability to what I call um, self-actualize, like to be able to actually fully blossom, like think of diversity of flowers, you know, or of anything in nature. We, we each have something unique to bring. It's, it's allowing ourselves to fully, rather than the competition of I'm going to succeed, but you're not. But that's, that's, I mean, you know, that's the, the kind of definition that we usually assume pertains to actualization, right? I mean, it's a common word and it's used for the materialist capitalist idea, right? Of achieving, accomplishing, right? Yeah. I'm going to be something, what the first question people ask these days, what do you do? 
Right. Right. So, I mean, what's, what does actualization mean for you then? Or individuation? I, I think it means allowing my own organism as I, it, it's the mystery. It's the mystery of life. We don't, we have these stories about what we're doing here or what it means to be here on earth, but we actually don't know. We don't know what life is. We're, we are experiencing it. So to me, the self-actualization is the curiosity. It's the mystery of, of discovery. And so I'm not so interested in what I get accomplished. I mean, obviously, I, you know, that's a survival response. I need to gather wood and, you know, water to survive, right? So there is that piece to it. But it's done in a kind of, um, it's done in a kind of, both a sense of awareness that I'm actually participating in something that has been done millions and millions of times before, right? It's like survival is, is part of my, is part of the psoas, okay? It's going to tell you, you know, if your animal body is threatened because you can't land, and if you can't land and locate, you're going to get a lot of fear responses. You don't know where you are. Into an animal body, that's a disaster, right? You're living along. You're going to be food for someone else. So we get these responses. But when we can land and locate, we have the ability to then begin to flourish or innovate. And that's the system of I'm kind of like knowing your paws on the ground. You start to read the earth in a different way. You know, you can feel the elephants, you know, hundreds of miles away, even if you can't see or hear them, you can sense that. That's the knowing I'm looking for. And the more I go there, the more nourished, the more pleasure, the more creativity, the more I feel like I flourish in my my life. So that, you know, I I want that experience of fully being here. Yeah. Even if I don't know what don't, I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't that the whole that's the whole point is that you don't need to know it. Why, why are we obsessed with knowing everything, right? You're just for kind of like, yeah. For safety, you know. But it, well, but as you pointed out, it wasn't always that way. That, no. You know, that there wasn't always this need for information and knowing with the indigenous cultures, right? So why, why was that different? Why didn't they have this need for reductionism, labeling and knowing and kind of isolating parts? Because I, I, I think they lived in harmony. You know, I think there was a deep-rooted earth you know, those earth cultures know things that that those of us who have come into a colonized are so disconnected from. Yeah, I mean, you have you have, you've got to if you haven't done look, listen to Tyson and Tyson on his podcast. And yeah, it's it's yeah, it's fantastic. He's got some amazing anecdotes about how oh, this is crazy. One of a each. Um, Aboriginal man, when he's at the age of 12 or 13 in a ceremony, gets a lock of, no, maybe, no, when they're a baby, sorry, when they're a baby, they get a, a lock of the hair cut and tied around a baby crocodile. Now, when they get to the, the manhood, they have this relationship with this particular crocodile that they've had their lock of hair tied around. And he said that they proved this in maybe the 40s or 50s when the, some Europeans like asked them to demonstrate this and all the Aboriginal men went down to the river and called their crocodiles. It's just unbelievable to to our kind of our you know indoctrinated perspective of thinking where there's just no magic in the world anymore, is there? Or you know, there's no you know yeah, it's mystery, mystery, and, and yeah, and connection, and, and yeah, it's like, well, that can't happen. That's just a you know, 
superstitious tribes, <laughs> you know. That's, that's the loss of soul. Yeah, yeah. About Earth, it's about our elemental experience of being here. Do you think it's also? It strikes me you can't even you can't do it alone either because maybe yeah, there's what well, maybe was your recommendation as well. The um, where my grandmother's hands, uh, the book by um, I forget his name now. Yes, because it's a difficult name to pronounce. Um, but I read it and I thought this is very difficult also for white people because not only are you know, we traumatizing many black bodies, but also we're doing so because of trauma and history that in the in the white body, right? That we're coming we're coming in with. That and he was kind of giving I mean I'm British as you can tell. And he was giving a kind of history of the you know kind of the British in the fifteen, sixty in their own country, what they did to their own people. That's insane. <laughs> like yes. the yes. brutality so of it. Not, we haven't not acknowledged that yet as white bodies is that we think, oh, look at, you know, what we've done to someone else or look at what they're experiencing. But actually it's like, we've done that to ourselves. Yeah. So it's easy to look outside and say, oh, we, you know, we've done this to, you know, to the other, but rather than actually, yeah, okay, yes, you need to hold your hand up and say, well, yes, that's the case. Right. But you also need to say, well, why is it the case? There's something that's actually traumatized within us that, but is that, is that fixable with the size or is that the right (laughs) way? (laughs) <laughs> can we can we just drink enough water and that'll go away? <laughs> well, let's let's yeah, let's define juicy because juicy isn't about how much water you drink. It, it, no, I was. It's actually how you utilize it. Yeah, so yeah. so it's it's kind of like again, that's that consumption. Like if I can just get something, will I be fixed? That is the consumption. That's what I call the ravenous body. It it's like. You know, like I've worked with Resma and I, I, I did a piece with him with a, uh, a group of white bodies. And one of the things he says, you know, is that, you know, they want me to say, what are the three things I can do to be anti-racist? Just give, give it to me. I'll go do it. You know, I'm on it. I'm on it now. You know, and he's like. Well, because he, trauma is also a shameful reaction. And yes. there's a lot of that in, involved, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, okay, I get it. Let's, let's fix this. And, and he's like. He's like, you know, how do we how do we slow down and sense into ourselves and and have the capacity to hold the lineage of what happened to our our bodies over time? And, and you know, because we're not to blame for what's happening, but we are responsible for not holding the systemic racism yeah, yeah. as a construct because. That, that's the big piece, is that being nice isn't enough. We actually have to deconstruct this systemic issue. Yeah. And also, Rizma kind of mentions quite a lot, this kind of sense of blame and shame is actually getting in the way of responsibility. Yes. Right. You know, it's an easy blockage to take, isn't it? And it's a good differentiation to make that it's not, there's no need necessarily to kind of chest beat, but it's a question of owning up and understanding what's happened and our own responses. Well, and that's where I think your actual somatic exploration of how you colonize yourself, how you you do a top-down model, like I'm going to tr- control my movement, I'm going to tr- control my emotions, I'm going to, you know, think that if I can think my way through this, I will be more uh, coherent. It's not. It's a connection with the vulnerability of being alive, of the sense of ground and earth it's a it's a 
It's a totally different experience. And white bodies were not raised in that. We, we isolate babies when they first show up. We isolate them in our parenting strategies. We, you know, cry it out, which opens up the, you know, things like opiates. We're, we are very dysfunctional culture if you look at the, the, the species. The, the species that is struggling is the white body, actually. Un and everyone else is under the suppression of the colonized systemic. This is the way to do it. This is the right way, you know? And, and so I started exploring it myself. I tracked back how I understood whiteness because whiteness wasn't even a word I ever thought about. I wasn't white. Everybody else was some other color, right? I was colorblind. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I grew up in a segregated uh, part of, you know, Cleveland, Ohio. You know, it's like, I didn't see any body of color or any body of even, you know, anything different than what I knew. And I could live in this kind of bubble for a long time because everything was over there. Even when I lived in very multiracial cities, I enjoyed all that that brought, but I still didn't perceive myself as part of this systemic issue. I didn't take, I didn't see it. I, you know. But it was actually for me an experience of being in the, I was in uh, St. Louis and my daughter was living in the inner city and I would walk uh, the streets and I would feel the culture that was there. Even though it's a very poor area, there was so much soul and I'd done enough somatic work that I started to feel how soulless I was. I, I started to feel, they, I, I want to say almost the whitewashing of me. The, uh, the yeah. packaging of me as a as an object in which I could be sold in various ways. I can sell my teaching. I can go to the mall and buy something, and that makes me better. The soullessness within my own white culture, and it was it cracked. I cracked in some way. It was like all of a sudden I realized I'm hungry for something I don't know. I don't know what it is to taste that level of connection to earth, you know, and I don't mean going out camping. I mean that connection to earth through body, through really a deep connection and rootedness. But there was a little, you know, it's like something started to open the, open me up. And that's when I started. And so then when Resma came into my life, which he did, two black men came into my life when I read Stalking Wild Sowers. One of them was, Resma Manikam, he just showed up, and the other one was Bale Akamolfi, who is an amazing uh, uh, speaker and, and storyteller from Nigeria. And, and both of these men showed up, and, you know, like kind of like just out of the, the internet, you know, like boom, you know, and, they, and I reached out to both of them, they both responded. Bale wrote uh, it, uh, I met Bale before my book was published, so he's literally on the cover. And Resma came afterwards where I met, saw his work. And as a somatic educator, I had never met anyone who dealt with racism, uh, you know, directly. And so I reached out to him and I went and I spent time with him. And, you know, and I want them, I want, I, I feel honored that they are, are, are both people in my lives who are shifting my paradigm of understanding being human. Yeah. And I, I think, 
I've really been inspired by looking at this this um, indigenous thinking that you kind of you know, encouraged me to do so because previous to that I was like I was still so indoctrinated, kind of trying to study kind of Western philosophers generally, or you know, or even maybe Indian philosophers using my own tools, you know, having inherited you know the kind of Western empiricist model that I've grown up in, right? And um, yeah, and I, as you say, I have a lot to, to uh, yeah, I have a lot of similarity with living in. Um, non-white areas so i was living in brixton for example in london you know with some huge jamaican communities yeah and going to consume the culture really isn't it oh isn't that you know it's like i suppose it's just like taking it in the way in, in my own context right oh that's novel that's different you know like i'll you know i'll you know i'll get a bit of that when i want it right but i mean how can we be any other you said you lived in segregation and you're relating to it in a certain way what is it to, to actually be non-racist in a constructive manner rather than I think it's all too easy, as Resmer points out in his book, to simply get involved in feeling of, of shame and blame, right, which aren't really helpful for anyone. I mean, okay, there's a sense of one needs to, you know, acknowledge, but then what? Right. Well, I do, I do think recognizing that the construct, it, it's a choice then, because the construct of understanding that other is not the difference between the white culture. It, it's actually we who are kind of out of connection with life. That, that's a shift in your consciousness because otherwise I live my white body life and mine seems to be like, you know, like some people say like they have, you know, like, oh, I welcome everyone into my life. You know, I like, you know, but actually you're saying come and be who, where I am. Whereas the ability to kind of dissolve and, and literally, I think it's a humbleness because when you're imperialistic, when you're, you know, colonizing, you believe what you're bringing, what you're destroying, the genocides are relevant or you're bringing something. So in the destruction is this strong ethical belief that I'm doing the right thing, either, either done in truly like the missionary style, you know, of coming in and saving, or it's coming in of saying, you are, uh, uh, get out of my way because I want to, I want to take. And what I'm taking is all the value that your, you know, your ground, your land, your whatever it is. So that's where, where you start to see something that's actually deeply rooted in us. And so I think it's a kind of, honor and 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 vital for us to dismantle this because who can better dismantle white supremacy but white bodies you know we can do that instead of holding it because we profit from it we benefit from it and the most uncomfortable thing is well what will that mean for my life but that's part of the construct is like you know well yeah, I want everybody to be equal, but as long as it doesn't influence me, you know, and that's that's the meism of the whole. So we don't even know. We don't even know what it might be like to deconstruct it. But for me, I started to see how SOAS was symbolic of this colonization by the recruitment of SOAS to have the arrogance of thinking that I am a more enlightened being than you are. Okay. I mean, right there to me is, you know, a disassociation. It's like, sorry, you know, that's, <laughs> I don't, I don't believe that, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and when you take the, the intensity of the so as 
recruitment, you find the vulnerability that all life has. And people, people say, oh, my God, when I don't recruit myself, I feel how vulnerable, a deeply vulnerable. Maybe that's a little chink into something, that idea of vulnerability, right? Yeah, rather than just a sense of knowing and arrogance and, yeah, yeah, the sense of the ability to be vulnerable and then nurture that vulnerability maybe, something around that. It is. It yeah. is a nurturing. It is. You know why? Because it's right there where your kidney adrenals are. Mm. So longevity is actually based on resiliency and the nourishment of that water element. And it's not just drinking because then you'll just pee a lot. It's like literally letting that tissue soften and open. And then your heart is is available and your gut is available and you're more whole in your sensory system. So the kinesthetic sensory system is more available to you. So you actually, out of vulnerability, comes a, a certain level of courage and, a, you know, not will, but courage and capacity and nuance. And uh, there's so much richness there that we, when we're striving, we can't sense. Yeah. I suppose it, I was just reflecting back to my experiences of living in this, this area of London and Brixton again and how now it's been made because it was a trendy area and it's been um people used to visit it because it was lively jamaican and you know and had something else you know something other and now it's just been made into another kind of white theme park of like kind of like a street food eateries and that kind of thing right and you know the prices have gone up you know um flash apartments have been built a whole bunch of white yeah, folk have moved in the, yeah. the you know the original occupants the jamaicans have been moved out and you know it's like it just feels hopeless. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the gentrification the gentrification. But I do feel like there are so many good indigenous uh the, the the indigenous cultures have many many of the young people today live in both worlds. Okay, many of the speakers, somebody like um Robin Kimmermer who wrote uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. You know, she's a scientist and she's indigenous and she can uh, shape shift. She can go back and forth, right? From the Western world to the indigenous mm -hmm. world. It's a different world. It's a literally different world. Yeah, but I think you have to yeah. live in both. I mean, as Tyson pointed out in, the, in his podcast, if you don't, if you're not able to live in this world, in this world, you know, that we are in, right? Then you, you know, currently there's no place for you, right? You have to be able to earn a living to raise a family to operate in the context of the world we're talking about as well but we also have the opportunity right now to say this isn't the world i want to live in i want i want i want a deeper connection to earth okay and 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 i feel like we are at a turning point we are beyond the turning point it's going to happen whether we like it or not and so we can either be on the side of the mechanistic, I'm going to, you know, get in my spaceship and go to Mars, you know, <sighs> and, and fuck the earth, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, we can use it as a national park. Um, yeah. yeah. Or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to turn towards that wisdom that was, is part of millions of years of species and living here through being an animal body and discover something that is the mystery of life. Mm. And to be fair, I mean, 
is not simply to put ourselves on the level of just kind of going back to animality, let's say. I mean, kind of also to mention Tyson again, he mentions a stewardship, that the human has a responsibility the hu- that in Aboriginal culture, that the human being has a responsibility to help take care of the earth, the animals, that, and that's the role of the human. As I, I, would, I, would, I would actually disagree with that because that, that to me is a religious perspective, um, which many indigenous cultures were pushed upon, right? Which is that we're stewards, we're the higher, but I don't think intellectually we're higher. I mean, slime mold has no brain and, it, and it's who I dedicated my book, Stalking Wild So As To, because it's brilliant. It moves, it learns, and it has no brain. We we have no idea what we are in a bigger. I mean, we have more fungi than we have, you know, and bacteria than we have human cells. We have to take ourselves out of the high stewardship of I'm going to how I'm going to fix the world to recognizing the reciprocity. We are eating the plants that provide for us. They give us life. Our fungi is what keeps the internet going. It's like we are part of an entangled life. And, and until we start to sense that depth of nourishment that comes through this reciprocity. And I do think Robin does a beautiful job of, of speaking to that reciprocity that we so don't get as a white body, especially a white body living in a city, you know, living away from nature. It's not like we're going to take care of. We're going to, you know, that's the, I'll take care of you. We'll take all your indigenous children. We'll put them in a school. We'll teach them what it is to be white. We'll take care of them. Yeah. Yeah. You see how that worked out. You know, uh, it's like, oh my God, we've got to let this one go. And, but that's our fear. It's like, how can I hold on to what I want and all the things I value and still come into this other way of being? And I, I, I think we'll, discover that in the coming years yeah who's who's got the real power here i think mother nature has the real power yeah all right liz that's a great place to end it i think that's a lovely last line and um well (laughs) (laughs) it's been a pleasure to speak to you again um i have nothing to add to that thank you for coming on thank you for inviting me Thank you.